What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. There is an ongoing human rights disaster on the ground in northern Syria and a complete geopolitical realignment. The Kurdish forces, this from the Financial Times, Kurdish forces say they have struck a deal with Syria and Russia to stop the Turks. In a dramatic shift that came just hours after Donald Trump ordered the evacuation of the remaining U.S. forces in the country's northeast, northeast Syria is a huge territory. It was controlled by the Syrian Democratic Forces. We call them the Kurds in shorthand, and in fact, the majority of them are Kurds. But there are also, in that region, there are Christian villages and a lot of Christians in those areas. And, you know, there are some other Arabs in those areas, uh, some Shia, some Sunni. I mean, basically, the Kurds, this fighting force, the Syrian Democratic Force, their whole thing was, we're not a religious force. We are not like an Islamic government, which is why it's a coalition of Kurds, you know, who have one variety of Islam, some Sunni, some Shia, and a lot of Christian fighters. And Trump has just turned all of them over to Syria. And Syria, of course, has a strong alliance with Russia. Russia has a major naval base there in Syria, which is one of the reasons that they've been working with Bashar al-Assad to stabilize that country. And now Turkey has bought major anti-missile defense systems. Over the objections of the United States and NATO, has bought these defense systems from Russia. So Erdogan has his own relationship with Russia. And in the meantime, Turkey is a member of NATO and has nuclear weapons based in Turkey. One of the things I've been trying to find out and have not been able to, frankly, is, and maybe if you know, give us a shout, is exactly who controls the nuclear weaponry that is in Turkey whether it's placed there by NATO itself, by the United States, by one of the NATO states, the major nuclear-armed NATO states are France and the UK. I just don't know. But what has happened is that a substantial region, and by the way, a region rich in oil, surprise, surprise, that was under the control of the Syrian Democratic Forces, 
that is to say the Kurds, the Christians, these local people who lived there, that was under their control, has now been turned over, essentially. You know, part of it has been taken over by Turkey, and they're slaughtering people. I mean, they're uploading videos of Turkish forces or fighters loyal to the Turkish forces beheading Kurds and Christians and others. I mean, this has gotten very, very gory and gruesome. And thousands of ISIS fighters and apparently tens of thousands of ISIS sympathizers and family members have escaped as the Kurds have had to leave these prisons to go north to defend their, literally defend their families. I mean, they live here too, or they did live there. These ISIS fighters and their families and relatives, including a whole bunch of, quote, high-value ISIS members, the plan was to deport these people either to Europe or the United States so that they could stay in trial. They have escaped. And in some places now in Syria, the ISIS flag is flying again. Thank you, Donald Trump. This is an extraordinary event. And it seems like the principal beneficiary of it in terms of power in the region is going to be Russia. That may not be a terrible thing if that means that the region stabilizes. But on the other hand, it could be very, very problematic for, well, it could be, it almost certainly would be very problematic for the Kurds. I mean, the Kurds are now aligning themselves, they're having to align themselves with Bashar al-Assad, you know, with Syria and with Russia, and yet Assad has, you know, basically throughout his presidency and his father as well before him been at a low level of war with the Kurds. And Turkey has their own problem with the Kurds. You know, nobody likes nobody in these regions like the Kurds there because the Kurds have always been there and the Kurds would like autonomy and the Kurds frankly in my opinion deserve autonomy. They deserve their own state. And they should take a piece of, you know, northwestern Iraq and and uh, northeastern Syria and southwestern Iran and southern Turkey. That's the old Kurdistan, and it should be the current Kurdistan, but the Kurds are finding themselves in this horrible, horrible position right in the middle. And Donald Trump is just, you know, I used to say about George W. Bush that when he lied us, he and Dick Cheney lied us illegally, committed war crimes and, and treason against the American people, frankly lied us into a multi-trillion dollar war in Iraq that has led to the death of thousands of American soldiers. You know, more people have died there than died in 9-11, and Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. And now Donald Trump is, in my opinion, another man who is a traitor to American values and to his country, is saying, oh, well, we're pulling these support troops. These are not combat troops that we had in Syria. I mean, they weren't engaged. Obviously, any troops are capable of engaging in combat, but that wasn't their role. Their role was to provide logistical and technical support to the Kurds, or actually to the Syrian Democratic Force, the Kurds and the Christians. And, you know, Trump has just said, screw you to them. But when Mohammed bin Salman, you know, Mr. Bonesaw, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, the despotic ruler of one of the most brutal tyrannies in the world, has said, uh, hey, we need some help defending our oil fields. Trump sends 1,800 soldiers. Boom! Just like that. So there's that. A couple hundred people last night showed up in Fort Worth, Texas for a vigil. Uh, Tatiana Jefferson was in her house. Here's this woman, this 28-year-old woman, in her house playing video games with her 7-year-old nephew. And 
the back door was open, apparently, or ajar, and a next-door neighbor calls the police and says, you know, with good intentions, says, uh, you know, the back door of the house next door is open. You might want to just check and make sure everything's okay. And so, you know, a cop shows up, sees her through the window, and shoots her. And, you know, they're playing video games. Maybe he thought the video game controller was a gun or something. I don't know. But whatever, whatever he thought, there was, this certainly looks like another, you know, oh, my God, I was afraid it was black people, white cop killing in Texas. But to just finalize my rant here on, on Trump and Syria, I think the biggest question is why has not Congress acted? Congress has the sole power to declare war according to the Constitution. The last time we declared war was World War II. We had the Korean conflict, we had the Vietnam War, we've had Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria. We've had involvement in all these countries. And none of them have been declared wars. And this authorization to use military force is a complete BS, smokescreen, fig leaf, whatever you want to call it. Congress needs to say we are or we are not at war. And if we are at war someplace, we need to authorize it. We need to define it. We need to define our goals. We need to tell the American people and Congress what victory will look like and what will happen when it's over and what we will do. That's what you do with a war. And if we're not willing to declare a war, we need to get the hell out. Not necessarily in the way that Trump is removing people from Syria. I mean, we need to get out in a way that is reasonable and rational and step-by-step -step and that protects our interests in the region. Or, frankly, better said, we need to protect the interests of democracy. The Kurds, for example, keep trying to create democratic governments. But they've had five Republican presidents in a row betray them. Richard Nixon betrayed the Kurds. Ronald Reagan betrayed the Kurds. George Herbert Walker Bush betrayed the Kurds in a way that led to the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of them in Iraq when he encouraged them to rise up against Saddam and then the U.S. refused to intervene. George W. Bush betrayed the Kurds in 2007, and now Donald Trump is betraying the Kurds. So why doesn't Congress, which has the sole power to authorize war, why isn't Congress acting? I realize, you know, Nancy Pelosi is pushing through a resolution in the House of Representatives. I think we need a hell of a lot more than that. And what's Moscow Mitch up to? God only knows. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Our book club book today is Last Boat Out of Shanghai by Helen Zia, the subtitle, The Epic Story of the Chinese Who Fled Mao's Revolution. This is from the prologue, Shanghai, May 4th, 1949. Bing sat up straight in the pedicab, gripping the hard seat as the driver cursed and spat. She watched with alarm as his feet, clad in sandals cut from old tires, seemed to slow to a snail's pace just when she most needed speed. This stylish-looking young woman had imagined that her last hours in Shanghai would be spent waving farewell from a ship's deck to envious onlookers below as a river breeze gently lifted her dark hair, just as she'd seen in the movies. After all, she was about to leave China's biggest, most glamorous, and most notorious city. But now, with the imminent threat of a violent communist revolution, she was running away again, along with half the city's population, it seemed. And instead of standing at the rail, exchanging smiles with the ship's other passengers, she was stuck in traffic, terrified that she wouldn't reach the Shanghai Hongkuo Wharf in time. That would spell disaster. She lurched forward as the pedicab driver stood on the pedals of his three-wheeled cycle and came to a stop. Around her was a sea of other pedicabs, rickshaws, cars, buses, carts, and trucks, 
all screeching and honking, their drivers yelling every manner of obscenity. The cacophony reverberated against the walls of the stone and concrete canyon of Nanjing Road. Bing was no stranger to Shanghai's mayhem, but she'd never seen anything quite like this. Of all times to be stuck in such bedlam, on the very day she had to get to the riverfront, the date set for her departure from this desperate city. She'd sewn her floral print quipois for this special occasion. Each careful stitch had captured her growing anticipation. With her oval face, big eyes, and full red lips all crowned by a tiara of black permanent waves, the 20-year-old might have been mistaken for a coy Shanghai poster girl, but for the panic in her eyes. Like her, everyone in Shanghai seemed to be in a frenzy to escape, to use any means to get away from the impending arrival of the communists. But unlike those who were still clamoring for a seat to anywhere, Bing was one of the lucky ones. She possessed a precious one-way ticket out on a ship to America. Finally, the driver managed to break through the crush. He harangued everyone in his path, shouting, move along, you worthless male mule scrotum, smellier than pig farts. She didn't blink at his choice of words, which came as naturally as breathing on Shanghai's streets. She didn't care as long as she got to the wharf. The ship's smokestacks came into view just past the stately Astor House Hotel and the towering 19-story Broadway Mansion's apartments, where the Xinjiao Creek meets the bend in the Waihangpu River, the last major tributary of the mighty Yangtze River before it joins the East China Sea. Massive granite buildings, all in European style, lined the signature waterfront boulevard and docks. To the foreigners, this prime section of waterfront was known as the Bund, from a Hindustani word meaning embankment. The Chinese called it Waitan, meaning outside or foreign shore, a reference to the foreigners who once ruled this proud imperialist showcase of Shanghai. British and American businessmen had wrestled, wrested away the best sections of the port city with the full support of the government. Land and sovereignty had been ripped from China, spoils of the opium wars that had forced the narcotic onto China 100 years before. Everything about these monuments to international capitalists and pale big noses seemed foreign, including the British Big Ben chime of the giant clock tower over the customs house. Soon it would be up to the communists to decide what would follow, what would happen to these grand stone edifices. Shanghai was China's most modern, populist, and cosmopolitan city. One of the leading metropolises of the world, the Paris of the Orient was also home to tens of thousands of foreigners who were despised as imperialists by the Communist Party and its leader, Mao Zedong. The city was the launching point for major inland routes and international traffic, whether by boat, plane, train, or wooden cart, making it the epicenter for the massive exodus in the late 1940s. Stoked by the anticipated communist victory over the nationalist government headed by Chiang Kai-shek, panic and terror had first infected the wealthiest, most educated, and most privileged classes and sent them running in what they fully expected to be a brief exile. It was assumed that the communists would target the rich and the pampered in the same way that the Bolsheviks had gone after the czarist white Russians, many of whom had come to Shanghai as refugees from that 1917 revolution. No one knows precisely how many people fled Shanghai during the early years of the Communist Revolution. Scholars and journalists have estimated that more than a million people set off from or through that port city. Many of those who ran for the exits belonged to the city's capitalist and middle classes, who presumably had the most to lose under the Communists. These two groups comprised about 5% and 20%, respectively, of the city's 6 million residents, or about 1.5 million people. On the other hand, the remaining 4.5 million who made up Shanghai's majority saw no need to escape. 
They included Shanghai's industrial workers, coolies, drivers, the destitute. But it was not only members of the upper classes who fled. They were joined by old regime loyalists, from high nationalist government officials to lowly foot soldiers, as well as those who simply got caught up in the frenzy or were especially fearful. Unfortunately, there are no records of the exodus since the retreating nationalists destroyed as many documents as they could, while the incoming communists inherited a country in such disarray that no accounting to the departures is known to have taken place. Last boat out of Shanghai by Helen Zia. I've recently discovered the powerful health benefits of CBD oil and have been using New Leaf Natural CBD oil for months. She's about a half a year now, and I love it. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it great for folks who want the health benefits of cannabinoids without getting high. And it's non-toxic. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand that I use is New Leaf Naturals, NU Leaf Naturals, the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It is 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown right here in the USA. And the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's n-u-leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to n-u-leafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's really only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So it's Indigenous Peoples Day. Elizabeth Warren tweeted out the story of America's mistreatment of indigenous people is long and painful. And yet native communities have proven resilient. We owe them our respect and we must honor our government's commitments and promises to them. Hashtag Indigenous Peoples Day. Yes. Amen. And I'm sure probably most of the other presidential candidates also tweeted out something similar to that. What I wanted to share with you is the exact story. This used to be Columbus Day. And in some states, it still is Columbus Day. And this is an important part of our history. This was the founding, basically, of the European Empire on North America. It started, of course, with the island of Hispaniola, which is now known, half of it is known as Haiti, and half of it is known as the Dominican Republic split between the uh, basically the French colony half and the Spanish colony half and now they're two independent nations. That's where Columbus blundered into thinking he had hit the continental United States. Um, in 1503 in a letter to the king and queen of Spain he wrote gold is most excellent gold constitutes treasure and he who has it does all he wants in the world and can even lift souls up to paradise. This was his sales pitch for, you know for uh, his second trip you know, I think we'll find gold. <laughs> it's, but Miguel Cuneo was a member of Columbus's crew. He was literate. He was actually quite a competent writer. He kept the diary for the trip. And he wrote, when our caravels were to leave for Spain, these are the, you know, there are three ships, were to leave for Spain, we gathered 1,000, this is, you know, from Hispaniola. We're to leave for Spain. We gathered 1,600 male and female persons of those Indians, and we embarked on our caravels on February 17, 1495. So they took 1,600 men and women from the island that they were taking back to Europe to sell as slaves. And then he adds, for those who remained, for the soldiers who stayed, in other words, they built a fortress there and, and uh, we let it be known to the Spaniards who manned the island's fort in the vicinity that anyone who wanted to take some of them could do so. 
to the amount desired, which was done. In other words, the local Spaniards who got to stay could make slaves out of the local Indians that they had conquered. Quino says that Columbus himself gave him a beautiful teenage girl, a Carib girl, and when he attempted to have sex with her, and this is quoting his own diary, quote, she resisted me with all her strength. I thrashed her mercilessly and raped her. He was quite apparently proud of that. Columbus wrote to the Spanish monarchs in 1493, quote, it is possible with the name of the Holy Trinity to sell all the slaves which it is possible to sell. Here there are so many of these slaves, and also Brazil would, that although they are living things, they are as good as gold. Basically, he didn't find any gold there. But what he did find was, you know, potential slaves and wood. In 1500, he wrote to a friend of his, this is Christopher Columbus, a hundred Castellanos, as a Spanish coin, are as easily obtained for a woman as for a farm. And it is very general, and there are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls. Those from nine to ten years old are now the most in demand. The Tiano didn't particularly like this, the Indians. When Columbus wanted to impose, for even a minor offense, an Indian's nose or ear was cut off so they could impress people with their brutality, Columbus attacked them with dogs, skewered them with pikes, and shot them. Eventually, life became so unbearable that, as uh, Pedro de Cordoba wrote, they have, the Indians choose and have chosen suicide. The Indians engaged in mass suicide for a couple of generations to the point that there were none left by 1455 or 1555, it's amazing. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey Morris, what's on your mind today? This is a damn shame. Putin owns the U.S. president. Russia has bought, they own our U.S. president. You know it's about increasingly that. Look, looking that way. I mean, you know, it's been looking that way in some ways from day one. But I don't know why the American media keeps, you know, shying away from that explicit statement, Morris. But straight up, it's obvious to everybody. And the reason why Congress hasn't done anything, Professor, now come on, now you're an educated man. There is no honor among these. Yeah. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. Well said. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's up? Uh, hello, Tom. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Well, since we're on the topic of traitors, do you want to know who the first, what state the first Union general who won the first battle of the Civil War for the Union was? I have Trump? no idea. I'd love to know. He was from Virginia. Oh, that's interesting. Virginia was part of the Confederacy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, Winfield Scott who came up with the Anaconda plan was also from Virginia, and he was the first. So, the, so uh, a Union general, general was from, from Virginia? Or he just won yeah. in Virginia? No, he was from Virginia, literally, wow. Wow. born and raised. Wow. Yeah, and Winfield Scott, who came up with the Anaconda plan, he was the first general under Lincoln before being, you know. What was the Anaconda plan? It was to cut off the South, the Mississippi River, and uh, this was a war strategy. Yeah, it was like, you know, uh, anaconda, like, you know, the snake, you know, wrapping around a prey. Sure. But anyway, let me get back to my phone call. Trump is obviously a traitor to the country. But the real question is, what can be done about that? And increasingly, it looks like Nancy Pelosi is also, I hate to say this, but basically a traitor herself. You know, that's pretty Uh, strong language. Well, what has she done to stop Donald Trump? Nothing. 
Oh, like, no, she has started an impeachment hearing. She has, I think she's done about as much as she can to stop Donald Trump. And I'm no generally no Pelosi apologist, but he is stonewalling all these committees. I mean, what do you want her to do? And anything she passes, she's passed 200 and 280 pieces of legislation now that are sitting in the graveyard that is Mitch McConnell's desk. She could stop all legislation from passing. Like all these like war bills, I mean, she doesn't have to pay us any of these things. I've been yeah. talking about this for a while now. I mean, at this point, uh, they're, they're basically just giving Trump the power to do whatever the hell he wants. Yeah. And I think that defunding, for example, the White House Counsel's Office is a good idea right now, although I'm sure she won't do that because that would be viewed as too partisan. And I think that, you know, digging into the military budget right now is a good idea, too, because uh, I think parts of that run out at the end of at the end of this month. Jared, thanks for the call. We'll be back. It's past the hour. Tom Harvard here with you. Fair and only slightly unbalanced. The Washington Post's Jackson Deal writing an op-ed today. In a month, Trump has destroyed, quote, America first, end quote. And it points out, you know, trying to negotiate with the Taliban, something that uh, he was going to bring to Camp David just before 9-11. Uh, the Taliban, of course, had sheltered Osama bin Laden when he plotted 9-11 insane. I think, you know, working out a deal with the Taliban and getting us the hell out of Afghanistan is a very good idea. I think trying to do it as a publicity stunt the week before 9-11 is a very stupid idea. But that fell apart. The Saudis got the message that they can do pretty much whatever they want. Uh, North Korea has gotten that message. They're now firing off missiles with uh, multiple warheads from submarines, something that not only are they not supposed to be doing, but we didn't even think was within their capability. They're rapidly developing an expanded nuclear capability. Is Trump going to betray South Korea next? Is Trump going to betray Taiwan next? I mean, I guarantee you these countries are sitting around saying, OK, you know, he betrayed he betrayed the Kurds in northern Syria who fought on, on behalf of the United States and other countries against ISIS. He has betrayed his European allies repeatedly, condemning NATO and all these sorts of things. Is he going to betray us next? Is South Korea going to fall to North Korea? I mean, what is the next thing that's going to happen? How bad is it going to get? I think it's just it's just astonishing. Mike, in Lomita, California, there was an impeachment rally in Los Angeles yesterday. Yes, one of, uh, I think it was hundreds across the country. And uh, it was a pretty remarkable sight. There were something like 200 or more pro-impeachment uh, demonstrators in front of the federal building in Westwood and something like four or five pro-Trump people uh, yelling back at them. Wow. My favorite site was, and it showed up on the local ABC News, was uh, a guy in the whole Trump outfit with a Trump mask wearing a rigged witch hat and uh, holding a sign that said, betrayal is my only skill, right. which sort of characterizes Trump, I think. Oh, by the way, every time we talk about American Indians, we're making a Columbus joke because he thought he was in India. Right. The name. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Mr. Incompetent. He, he blundered into the wrong continent, gave it the wrong name. <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible. If he'd hung I'll, out I'll, in, yeah, 
if he'd hung out in Scandinavia more, he might have figured out there was a North America, but he didn't know there was such a thing. Yeah, no, the Norwegians were here 400 years before Columbus, and it's now well established. And they knew it was another continent, and they put it on their maps, but he blundered into it. And in fact, even the name America came from the map maker. You know, it was Amerigo Vespucci, and he put his name down on the lower right-hand corner of the map, and people thought, oh, that's the name of the country. Mike, thanks for the call, and thanks for the update on what's going on there, and, and I appreciate you listening to uh, KPFK. Scott in Topanga, California, you say Columbus actually knew he wasn't in India. From what I read, and I wish I could remember the book I read it in, it was a uh, textbook, Europeans knew how Indians, how people in India dressed, you know, what their customs were, sure. what they looked like, and... Uh, no, but did he not think in, that he had he had discovered the equivalent of Ceylon, Sri Lanka, you know, an, an island off the coast of India? From what I read, no. And not only that, but the name Indian had nothing to do with India, according to this. It yeah. was because of Columbus's, he was Italian, he was not Spanish, right? His Spanish wasn't great. In his log, he wrote that he found the English translation would be, he found the people to be a people in God. Now, in Spanish, that would have been spelled in D-I-O-S. Yeah, in Deus. And he spelled it wrong. He combined the two words. Yeah. And, oh, it, Scott, if you can come up with an authoritative Deus. source for that and let me know what it is, I, you know, I wanna, it sounds like a fascinating bit of history. But for the moment, I'm going with, with Columbus was an idiot. I appreciate your call, but it's, you know, I'll, I'll take the cheap shot. I'm, I'm fine with that. Uh, Phil in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Hey, Phil, you want Columbus hey, Day happy back? Columbus. Seriously? Happy, yeah, happy, happy Columbus Day, Tom. Is that, is that an uh, Italian gonna, thing or is that a, uh, an American uh, well, jingoistic thing? No, no. Well, well, I'm an Italian American. I'm 100% against uh, the states and the uh, cities uh, taking away. Uh, well, why not have uh, an Italian American Day? You know, a separate day. Well, it's morphed into that. Columbus Day is morphed into with. Uh, oh, I know it did that. It did, it did that in the late 1800s, early 20, in, in the early 20th century, as as the Italians were emerging, particularly in New York City, emerging out of the you know the wars against the Irish and the and the and the British ancestry. Europeans here and, quote, becoming white. I mean, there's a, there's a fascinating new book about this called, you know, When the Italians Became White, which is kind of following on the book about five or six years ago, When the Irish Became White. You know, it talks about that and how Columbus Day was, you know, their day. And, I, you know, I get all that, but Columbus was also, you know, a vicious murderer, a slaver, a rapist, a thief. Don't you think that celebrating celebrating your Italian heritage would be better served by honoring somebody like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci? Uh, well, the, the thing is, like I said, it morphed into that, but it, it's spiteful. He's become a scapegoat for, like, the Trail of Tears, Custer's and reservations, etc. Well, he started and, and, like, the process. Painful. Well, maybe he did, but we did the rest. Well, you know, no denying that, but uh, still, he started the process. I don't see what about Columbus is worthy of any kind of memorialization. And were I Italian, I mean, I'm Norwegian American, right? I'm 48% Norwegian. And, and, and I don't, you know, if Anders Breivik, the guy who her murdered, you know, 70 liberals at that summer camp, in, who's the Norwegian in Norway, you know, if he had been some major historical figure, I wouldn't be saying, hey, you know, uh, us people of Norwegian ancestry should have an, have an Anders Breivik day. I mean, I just don't get why Italians like you, Phil, 
would want Columbus to be your logo. I don't, I, you know, I mean, you've got some brilliant Italians. You've got, you know, you've got philosophers, you've got mathematicians, you've got scientists, you've got brilliant artists, you've got a lot of popes. Can't you figure out a different logo for your Italian-American day? I'm just saying, just leave it alone. You know, I, I'm for, totally for an Indigenous People's Day, totally for it, but not Columbus Day. You know, pick out any day of the year, you know, or a holiday that we don't use anymore, like Arbor Day. Give that to them. Yeah. You know, it's just, uh, it, there's millions of people that celebrate uh, Columbus Day. That's all I know. There's parades here in Philadelphia. There's uh, there's festivals going on at churches now. And it's it's a Columbus Day fe- uh, celebration. Yeah. Just like the Irish and, people, and, they and, celebrate St. Patty's Day. That's oh, I, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, I think that, I think that ship has sailed. I think this is gaining momentum and it's going to gain more momentum and if if you want to have an italian american day and have parades and events in towns and communities that are largely italian american ancestry i would suggest picking a different logo on a different day but phil it's it's your people your thing good luck with it thanks a lot for the call you're listening to tom hartman Hey, it's Monday, a great day to start a weight loss program. Until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite. Louise convinced me there was a product worth sharing, and a year later, I had to say she was right. Key to losing weight is getting your appetite and those pesky food cravings under control. Once you do that, the rest is easy. My producer, Sean, is trying Ridgizone, too. Who doesn't want to lose a few pounds before the holidays? Sean says Ridgizone is making it easier for her to stick to her weight loss plan. Just one capsule with breakfast and forget it. A second one at dinner for days when you need a little extra help. Sean says when you don't feel hungry, it's easier to make better choices. Great wisdom. The only ingredient Ridgizone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant, and that really appealed to both Louise and Sean. Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Ridgizone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and get up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to Ridgizone.com. It's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Ridgizone.com. And use that promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get 65% off and free shipping. Ridgizone.com. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, let's get back to the Kurds. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm well. What's on your mind, Pam? My concern is I think one of the soldiers, Tom, made a comment that this was the first time that they felt ashamed. Yes, that was one of the Green Berets. Yep. Okay, yes. They, they felt like they were abandoning their allies, you know, people that they worked closely with. So I wanted to ask Tom, ask you, what is the reason Trump is doing this? And I don't care what he says or what the White House is saying. I believe it is because there is a benefit to Russia and Putin. And I think we need to just state it and say it. So I'm asking you that. And and Tom, I know your call screener said one thing. Can I ask you one other question? (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. Uh, And I understand. I'm upset, Tom, because I feel like black people can be accidentally shot. Right. right, by the police officers. I don't, it's, um, it wasn't so, accidental, but yes, I get your point. We, we, so I'm concerned about that. But, Tom, can we win this election without Republican voters? And the reason I'm asking, because Trump supporters and the Republican voters are so dedicated to him. Yeah. 
We're going to be discussing that. I don't want to worry about trying to win them. Can we do it? Yeah, we can. We can. Pam, the the number of people who identify themselves as Republicans prior to Trump's election, in fact, prior to Trump's nomination, was in the mid-30s. It was about a third of Americans. It's now in the high 20s. 27, 28 percent of Americans still call themselves Republicans. And of those people who still call themselves Republicans, only about 80 percent of them, 85 percent of them, you know, are, are strong supporters of Donald Trump. So that's, you know, you're pushing 21, 22 percent of the population. I, it is it's going to be easy, I believe, to win an election without Trump supporters. The challenge is going to be the, the people who are the low information voters, the people in the middle. That's part of the challenge. Um, that's the conventional wisdom challenge that all the consultants are pushing. But uh, I frank, frankly think, I've, I, you know, I push back on that. I think that the challenge for us is going to be getting out our base, getting out the people who traditionally haven't voted and need to vote, young people, communities of color, particularly Hispanics right now, African-Americans are becoming more and more active. We, and, and in those communities where there has been active and aggressive voter suppression going on, you know, working as hard as possible to overcome that voter suppression or to turn and to turn out in such overwhelming numbers that, you know, if they can knock a million people off the voting rolls, we'll show up three million. Um, that's what we've got well, to do. I know, Tom, I'm going to do all that I can and I'm going to encourage everybody that I know because uh, it is critical at this moment. Yeah. Trump and, is betraying the country. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. And, and women, by the way, women is the other, quote, minority group that need to get out there. But Pam, if I can answer your first question real quick, because I see the yes. clock here and I know I'm going to hit a break in a second. I believe my personal belief, and I have no evidence for this because we have not been allowed to see the transcripts of Trump's conversations with Erdogan. But we do know that back when Trump came, and this is on the record, we do know that back uh, two and a half years ago when Trump first compiled his Muslim country list for his Muslim ban, remember that? That Turkey was on that list. Erdogan called him up and said, I'm going to take your name off the Trump Towers here in Istanbul, and you're going to lose your $5 million a year in licensing fees. And Trump immediately took Turkey off the list. So I think that, you know, knowing how craven and how purely personally motivated Trump is, how he bragged, you know, after he was nominated that he would be the first person in history to profit off the presidency, I believe that Erdogan called up Trump and said, you know, you've got 109 or 119 business interests in this country. You've got a Trump Tower in this country. Um, you're going to lose it all if you don't let me take the Kurds out. I think that the principal beneficiary of this is Mr. Putin, President Putin and Russia, but also Turkey. And I think that we could be seeing a process. You know, one of two things is going to happen when the, the Russian troops are coming up from the north, along with the Syrian troops. The Turkish troops are coming down from the south. They're catching the Kurds in the middle. The American troops are, are getting the hell out of the way. When those two groups meet, when the Turkish groups from the north meet, um, meet the Russian and Syrian troops from the south, and it's actual Russian soldiers on the ground, the test is going to be, Turkey is going to have to say, okay, are we a NATO country and are we going to defy Russia here and, and perhaps even engage in combat with them? Or are we going to go with Russia, which just sold a major defense and anti-missile defense system to Turkey? Are we going to turn our back on NATO and strengthen our alliance with Russia? And this is a all of this. What we are watching is a dramatic change in the geopolitics of this region and the ascendance of Russia, the descendants of American influence, and thus the influence of small d democracies, democratic republics. So it's going to play out, Pam. I'm not sure how, but that those are my thoughts on it. Thank you for the call. You're listening to 
Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. On the other hand, it's entirely possible that Trump got a call from Putin who said, you know, get the hell out of there. Those are my orders. And Trump says, sir, yes, sir. And we just don't even know about the phone call. Anything is possible. Denise in Benicia, California. Am I saying that right, Denise? Yes, you are. Thank you very much, Tom. I really appreciate the program this morning and appreciate your time. I have a comment on the indigenous people of these lands. Mm -hmm. I am Muskogee Creek from Kyaligi Tribal Town, Bear Clan. Mm -hmm. Long before colonization, we were over 500 distinct nations and with languages and customs that were specific to the land, the surrounding waters the mountains, the plains, and the deserts. Our tribal names are distinct languages, and they mean the people or the human beings. Right, I understand that. Just a comment to yeah. add, and, and yeah. historical, I'm sure you understand and, that. But and, and that's so not that unique to Native Americans, by the way. Pretty much every people in the world, their word for themselves is also their word for human beings. Yes, and our relationship to the earth, the planet, and all beings. Yeah. It's our, our single words, the reduction of the English language, which is often regarded as a trade language, has reduced us to such an elemental form that it has dispossessed us from our relationship, not only to ourselves, but to everything that was in our culture, in our ways of life, and our ways of being, to the extent that we live all in indigenous peoples of the earth, and that's our gift to everyone else who were trying to learn from us and those who didn't understand and chose not to understand to learn from us, tried to obliterate us because that's what happens with human relationships is that we destroy that which we don't understand, which kind of brings us to full circle to where we all are right now in time. And that if we're not going to understand one another and if we're not going to understand this earth, if we're not going to understand the waters, the atmosphere that feeds us and every other living thing on this earth, we will lose it. And that's the message that we're being given right now. Yes. And that our culture needs to hear. But I wrote about this in the last hours of ancient sunlight. Jack Forbes, Dr. Jack Forbes, was my teacher in this regard. He was a professor of Native American studies at UC Davis. He was Native American himself. And he said that this Western culture that was brought to this country by Columbus and others he described it using the word wetiko, and he said that means yeah. those who are cannibals, essentially, those who eat the spirits and the lives of others. And you know, yeah. he, he said we were confronted with three choices. We could either stand and fight and in all probability die because of superior technology on the part of the Europeans. We could run or we could become them. We could negotiate, actually, was his first one. That's how we first started out. Or we could become them and fight them. But he said many of us were not willing to become them, uh, to become infected by Wetico. And uh, exactly. it's a powerful, <laughs> powerful story. Denise, thank you for yeah, sharing your, your story with us. I appreciate the call. Thank you very much. And happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the last hours of ancient sunlight. This is page 176. With few exceptions, most Native American cultures did not have our notions as part of their collective mythos. 
instead of the story that we're separate from creation and born to dominate it, these older cultures held a different view of the place of humans in the order of creation. They believe we are part of the world. We are made of the same flesh as other animals. We eat the same plants. We share the same air, water, soil, and food with every other life form on the planet. We are born into life by the same means as other mammals, and when we die, like them, we become part of the soil that will nourish future generations. They also believe it is our destiny to cooperate with the rest of creation. Every life form has its special purpose in the grand ecosystem, and all are to be respected, they believed. Each animal and plant has its own unique intelligence and spirit. We are permitted to compete with other plants and animals, but we may not wantonly destroy them. All life is absolutely as sacred as human life. Although hunting and killing for food are part of nature's order, when we do so, it must be done with respect and thankfulness. Older cultures are most often cooperators, not dominators. There are human cultures who do not engage in the destruction of the world. They demonstrate that destruction and domination are not an inevitable part of human nature. Prior to the emergence of younger cultures about 7,000 years ago, the anthropological record shows that not one culture believed itself to be separate from and superior to nature. We find the remnants of these older cultures and tribal people around the world, such as the San, the Kogi, the Ik of uh, Uganda, the Navajo, the Hopi, the Cree, the Ojibwa, living in harmony with the world around them, the people around them, and seeing all life as sacred. The San Bushmen don't even qualify as Stone Age, since they've never used stone implements, only tools made from wood. And yet they were successfully pursuing their way of life 40,000 years before Aristotle, and they still are. They leave behind few traces as they are such masters of resource management. That's sustainability. And contrary to the stories of our culture, it was and is often a happy and comfortable life. When we lived like that thousands of years ago, we enjoyed cradle to grave security. The tribe took care of itself. If anybody had food, everybody had food. If anybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent, everybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent. The measure of wealth in such societies was security. Medians of exchange like money were unnecessary. The idea of hoarding food or other things was unthinkable because everybody was responsible for everybody. Our ancient ancestors lived in the way of all other cooperator societies in nature, but be they the society of wolves or chimpanzees or prairie dogs, they looked out for one another. Our ancestors, people like you and me of all races and all continents, lived like this all over the world for 40 to 200,000 years, depending on whose archaeology you accept. And then there were eruptions among traditional cultures. In some parts of the world, people began to move away from their hunting and gathering lifestyle by experimenting with agriculture. This created more efficient food production, thus increasing their numbers and giving some people the ability to hoard food, the beginning of what we call wealth. Then a subgroup of the agriculturalists began experimenting with a new cultural idea of coercive or forced evangelism, of bringing others into their culture in a way that had never been done before. Their gods told them that if they couldn't evangelize others, then they should utterly destroy them. They were a very few, probably not more than a dozen tribes, which arose out of the tens of thousands of tribes that populated the planet. And this small number of tribes proceeded to wipe out and displace and destroy the thousands of other tribes who were living in a sustainable, peaceful, and connected to nature way. They left the garden and began to create dominating city-states and then empires. They were the first people infected with Wetiko, the origin of our younger culture. And because of this, they had become more efficient at increasing their own numbers. They had more sunlight under their own personal control. Of course, there was a price to pay for this. While the San, Kogi, Ik, and other native peoples may spend less than two to four hours a day gathering food and attending to the needs of life, and due to this day, by the way, 
In younger culture societies, this balance was radically shifted as average people must work longer and harder just to survive. Those who were the dominating individuals in the culture, however, could live luxuriously and work less and less. So for every person who only worked an hour or two a day, another person would have to work four or eight or ten hours a day or more. Without massive exploitation of resources or theft from others, for every person with ten times as much wealth, ten people must have only one-tenth as much. Social and economic classes were born, and the first governments came into being to define, order, and control the socioeconomic structure and help the wealthy maintain and increase their riches. Whether they knew it or not, these governments, mostly kingdoms in the early days, transmitted younger culture values to all citizens, rich and poor. The power brokers of this time programmed the consciousness of their subjects, just as our governments, educational institutions, and mass media do today. Nobody knows what brought about the first eruption of Wetiko cultural insanity, but logic suggests it was most likely happened in places where food resources were only cyclically abundant. For example, the Tinglet and Weida Native American tribes of the Pacific Northwest in the area around Vancouver Island were apparently extensive traders and owners of slaves. And this was because they could store food. This, this is where it all began, beginning wealth. Anyhow, the book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. This is just a small dip into it. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Jay in Seattle. Hey, Jay, what's on your mind today? I was just calling with a few facts on Columbus that okay, I don't go think for it. really get. Okay, uh, he thought the world was about, I think it's a third the size smaller than everyone knew it was. Right. Like, uh, um, if you look up the globe, the oldest globe that still exists, I think it's in Germany. Um, that was released about the same time he, he, he did his voyage. So he did think um, that he had hit basically an island filled with uh, Aboriginal people, indigenous people off the coast of India. Correct. He, yeah. he just, he was really bad at math. Right. The world was teardrop shaped. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's All right. That was fact one. Are there others? Uh, let's see. The shape of it was off. The, the weird Adam, uh, um, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, he believed was where he landed later. There was some, some weird stuff to kind of look into it. But he really thought it, he thought it was kind of oval shaped. Or not oval, teardrop shaped, the earth itself. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it okay. was crazy. All right. Great. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I, I appreciate the call, uh, Jay. Thank you. Uh, David in Pittsburgh. Hey, David. Impeachment? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, over the weekend, I, 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 was, I was in Denver for a board meeting of Vocal. It's a, a, a charitable organization I'm on their board of. And uh, we were eating in, in a restaurant, and the menu for dessert was peach sorbet. And and I and and I said I'll have some of that peachment uh, sorbet, and the waitress started laughing, and she said, "You're about the fourth person to say that today." Anyhow, back to you, David. Uh, yeah, I, have I should call her a servant, not a waitress. Forgive me, but anyhow, back to you. Uh, I have two questions. Yeah. One is uh, the Patriot Act was passed when uh, George. Bush Jr. was in office, and that that circumvented the uh, uh, House of Representatives to uh, uh, act as the war powering. Uh, in in some ways, yeah, but but it doesn't it doesn't diminish the constitutional requirement that war begins. Oh with no, the House. no, no! I'm saying they, it doesn't. What I'm saying is Congress uh, lost the right to declare war because it went into the executive branch. 
at that time. I think you could argue that started with the Harry Truman administration and his, quote, police action in North Korea, which was what basically Jack Kennedy imitated in, in 1961 when he moved 15,000 troops into South Vietnam. Okay. So yeah, there's, a, there's it, a long history to this. I'm, I'm just saying it's, it's time great. for Congress to reclaim its own inherent con constitutional power to declare and end wars. Okay, the other question I have for you is uh, the Judiciary Committee uh, voted on articles of impeachment when Nixon was in office. Right. And once they voted on that, they took that to the House, and the House voted to impeach right. Nixon, That's, did they not? No, they did not vote to impeach Nixon. David, thank you for the call. We'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Probably nothing is going to be more decisive in Republican victories in 2020, and certainly Donald Trump's, if it happens, than the economy. And there are those who are suggesting that central banks have figured out how to break the business cycle. The business cycle, you know, the boom and bust of the stock market kind of thing, that it seems to happen every six, eight years. And it hasn't happened in more than 20 years in Japan, hasn't happened in almost two decades in Australia. And so I wanted to get Dr. Wolf's thoughts on this. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author most recently of Understanding Marxism, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites. You can tweet him at Prof. Wolf. Uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So you want to recap for us what the business cycle is and share your thoughts? I know we've discussed this or danced around this, I guess, in the past, but just, you know, head on. Is it possible that that business cycle has been broken by interference by, you know, central banks? And is that what has happened in Japan and Australia? I really don't think so. I think that the efforts of very smart people, smarter than me and you, over two centuries at least, to try to contain, to stop, to prevent the business cycle, they've all failed. That's why we're in a mess again today. We just had, in 2008, the second worst collapse after the 30s in the capitalist system. So no, my short answer is I don't think we've overcome it. I think what we're seeing is an extraordinary anxiety, and rightly so, uh, on the people who are supposed to manage these cycles, at least make them less frequent, at least make them less cutting into the well-being of people, uh, at least being shorter than they might otherwise be. We're seeing those people, and above all central banks, take absolutely extraordinary steps because they are so afraid of where in today's integrated world another downturn will take us. So we see, for example, more money being pumped in than we've ever seen before. Interest rates being lowered, not only close to zero, but beyond zero into negative interest rates, which now exist all over the world and are being actively considered by the Fed in Washington as as I'm speaking. So you see extreme measures taken, and so you shouldn't be surprised if you get the following extreme result. All that money available at such low interest rates has led to a crazy situation. Here's what it is. Money is being borrowed in record amounts, pumped into the economy by central banks everywhere, 
And mostly it's going into two things. One, buying shares of stock so that stock markets go up, even though the underlying economy doesn't justify doing that, because there's so much money sloshing around in the stock markets that the prices are driven up. And number two, wild amounts of money is simply being lent to the government so it can continue uh, to spend money because, frankly, the private sector can't do it or won't do it. And so you're getting weird results. And again, just two examples. One, stock markets keep going up, leading politicians to point to them, like Mr. Trump, as if that were a sign of economic health, when it ought to be worrying you sick that the stock market's prices are bearing less and less relationship to the underlying economic reality. And the second thing that ought to worry you is that the level of debt in our in our world is gone crazy. Personal debt of individuals, corporate debt, and government debt are all at record levels, so that when finally the crash that is building, and that most people see when it finally hits, we are in for a doozy, as in a sense the chickens will come home uh, from this strange situation. So, if something's coming that resembles 1929 even more than it does 2008, what should the average person be doing? Hunkering down, I believe, is the American phrase. Yeah. Don't take chances. Don't make risky investments. Do not believe what the leading political or economic advisors are telling you. This is a very, very dangerous situation. Mr. Trump, in my own opinion, Mr. Trump is betting everything. His entire presidency, his legacy, in a desperate effort to get himself reelected when the biggest single threat to all of that isn't the impeachment, as most people think. It's the timing of the next downturn. If that recession hits sometime in the next six months, he's done. He's finished as president. There's no way or nothing that's going to save him with or without the impeachment, with or without some theatrical agreement at the last minute with China, which he's preparing for. These things are not going to work unless he can, among other things, by the Federal Reserve lowering interest rates and by the rest of the world's bank pumping in money, everything is now bet on postponing, delaying for a bit further the recession we're due to have. And I'm afraid I have to tell you that when you push them back, recessions have a nasty habit of then being worse than they might have been if you'd allowed them to play through the capitalist economy earlier. It's like postponing a treatment for an illness. You risk it becoming much, much worse. Yeah, I remember back in the 70s, I used to get this newsletter from Howard Ruff, who was this gold bug and, you know, right. all this kind of stuff. I'm, I'm guessing you're probably familiar with him. And yes. one of the points he made was that in the late 1920s, early 1930s, the people who made it through okay were, one, people who were self-sufficient, who had farms and things like that. And number two, people who were very, very liquid. They had virtually no debt and they owned pretty much everything they needed. Or number three, people who were in debt up to their eyeballs and could walk away from that debt. And the people who got really badly hurt were the people who had paid off half their mortgage, the people who, who had, you know, who were going to lose all their equity 
um, because of the disaster, but, you know, and couldn't walk away from that. Does, it, does any of that make sense in, in looking at this as just an average person or consumer? Absolutely. It makes perfect sense. You can, Ruff also told people to buy gold, as I recall. Yes. If you look at the gold price recently, it is going up as more and more people are beginning to think that hunkering down means getting rid of stocks, getting rid of all kinds of debt instruments, and holding on to gold in the expectation that that will be something of value when all the other things that supposedly are of value lose uh, lose theirs. All of these are responses. Sometimes they're done excessively, of course. Since no one knows what the future will bring, there is no riskless way uh, to invest. But again, the notion that we are going to escape the cyclical return of downturns that has plagued capitalism everywhere that system has settled in for a good 200, 250 years. The burden of proof has to be on people who think we've suspended all of that. We finally found the cure. That claim has been made so many times in the past. It's really only amazing to me that otherwise smart folks will indulge that fantasy uh, yet again. The The conclusion is be very, very careful about any debts you have, about any investments that may look too good to be true. They probably are. Remarkable. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much for dropping by today. Hey, Tom. Glad to talk with you. Great, great speaking with you. I look forward to our next conversation. Dr. Richard Wolf's uh, websites, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf.com. Uh, Wolf with two Fs. And you can tweet him at Prof Wolf. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.